start out with our motivation. And so, center ourselves, bringing us back to be sitting here in this room with our mind being where our body is. And knowing that we're surrounded by all the living beings as far as infinite space. And that no matter where we go, we're always surrounded by sentient beings as far as infinite space. And that all these beings are just like us, wanting happiness, not misery. And since we have a precious human life and the opportunity to practice the Dharma, and since all these beings have been kind to us, then it's only right that we try and use our present opportunity to be a benefit to them. So while it's good to benefit sentient beings in immediate ways, to take care of their problems while they're in samsara, it's even better to be able to lead them out of samsara. And so to do that, we first have to get ourselves out of samsara, then we have to generate all the qualities of the Buddha so we can really be of great benefit. And so for that reason, we aspire for full awakening, and we see what we're about to do this evening as one step in learning the path to practice to get there. And so let's keep that as our motivation for sharing the Dharma this evening. Last week, we were talking about our precious human life and the eight freedoms and ten fortunes that we have that are the defining characteristics of having a precious human life and how important it is for us to remember this and not take our life for granted, not take our situation for granted but uh, really appreciate it. So I think, you know, for Dharma practitioners, if, we, if our spirits ever get low, meditating on precious human life is the way to cure the depression. Because uh, we're extraordinarily fortunate. So the next topic is... Um, to contemplate the great potential of our precious human life, of our freedom and fortune. So here the text uh, 
Gumchen Namrim says, once you have attained a life with the ten kinds of good fortune, striving after the concerns of this life is animal behavior. Pretty blunt, isn't it? Yeah. It's like after you've gotten this incredible opportunity where you've met the Dharma and have the, can learn it, and there's teachers and teachings, and you have the interest in the Dharma, and you know, there's all the good conditions once you have that, to this just be concerned with what's happening in this life makes us no different from animals. I remember the very first course uh, I went to, Amazopa saying this, I went, mm, made me sit up straight, you know, because he said, well, what animals basically do is help their friends and harm their enemies. You know, so if you feed a dog, he likes you, he wags his tail, licks you, and if, if you don't feed him, then he, you know, he doesn't know you, then he barks and scowls. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, the relationship, you know, that the dog has with everybody is just based on whether somebody's nice to him or not nice to him. And I looked around and it's like, oh, I act that way too, you know. I'm such a sucker. You know, somebody's nice to me, whether they're sincere or not, then I think they're fantastic. Yeah. Somebody harms me, even they have a, you know, they're not actually harming me, they're trying to give me some useful feedback, but I don't want to hear it, and I see them as an enemy and I bark. Like, Who do you think you are talking to me this way? different than an animal. But then we say, but human, we have human intelligence, you know. Animals can't build skyscrapers and, um, you know, circle Pluto and do all of those things. Well, that's very true, they can't do that, but does doing all of those things uh, really benefit us sentient beings? You know, are we using our human intelligence the right way? Because we're, we also use it to make nuclear bombs and missiles and, you know, we just had another school shooting. That's how the human intelligence is being used. So sometimes human beings act worse than animals, don't they? Yeah, no animal would go into a school and start shooting people they didn't know. Yeah. So, you know, when we're just concerned with, you know, the immediate happiness of this life, our human intelligence gets misused yeah, uh, to create suffering and the causes of suffering. Okay, so um, he's saying, check up and, you know, don't keep yourself focused on just the happiness of this life because it doesn't really lead to anything good. Okay. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be happy in this life. Yeah, the Buddha's not saying that. 
It's just when you're attached to only the happiness of, the, of this life, and everything we do is revolved around, you know, I want this and I want that, and getting what we want and pushing away what we don't want. When we run our whole life like that, then, you know, there's no way really to be happy at all. And basically our, our motivation is like the motivation of animals. Yeah, my happiness now. We make it a lot more fancy, a lot fancier and a lot more complicated, but it's the same thing. Yeah, so let's not, you, you know, once we found this precious human life, let's not use it that way. Yeah, because we're capable of more. Yeah, we have the ability to uh, to discern what is virtuous and what's non-virtuous, and to abandon the non-virtue and to create virtue. In other words, we have the ability to understand what is the cause of happiness and what is the cause of suffering, and then to deliberately cultivate the causes of happiness and conscientiously abandon the causes of suffering. And that's something that distinguishes us from animals. Animals can't distinguish the cause of happiness and the cause of suffering. Yeah. They, our kitties think happiness is getting pet, but only when they feel like being pet. Going for walks, but only when they feel like going for walks eating all the time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you try and explain to them, yeah, don't, don't uh, chase after flies or don't uh, leap in the air to catch birds or don't chase chipmunks. You know, kind of, you know, these sentient beings want to be alive just like you do. And the cats look at us. You know, nothing goes in. So some people are actually like that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you try to explain what to practice and what to abandon so they'll be happy. And they, they look at you like you're nuts. Yeah, like why, why would I do that? You know, happiness is... It's Friday night, and, you know, I can watch the football game and down a beer or two. But don't tell me about, you know, virtue and precepts and that kind of stuff. Hmm? Kind of sad, isn't it? Kind of sad. Okay, so the author continues. Only rebirth as a man or woman in the uh, other three continents is a suitable basis for take the, taking ethical restraints, not unutarakura. U, yeah, utarakuru. So in the old, um, the ancient Indian vision of the uh, cosmos, there's a central mountain, there's four continents, and the human beings in this one continent called utarakuru uh, can uh, the way their 
bodies and minds are structured, they cannot take the pratimoksha precepts, the, the, like the five lay precepts, the monastic precepts. So they don't have the opportunity to create the virtue and abandon the non-virtue that, that keeping any level of precepts affords one. Okay, So he's saying that only rebirth as a man or a woman in these other three continents around the central mountain, which, I don't know, you can take the cosmology or leave it. Um, yeah, but the point is that not everybody has the ability to, uh, or the opportunity to practice ethical conduct, and ethical conduct is the basic, the basis of all other practice. Really succeed in uh, more difficult practices if we can't stop being a jerk on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so that's what I call um, impure ethical conduct. I call it being a jerk. <laughs> yeah, because that's what jerks do, don't they? They lie. They talk behind people's back. They yell and scream at people, they gossip, they do all sorts of really dumb things that create a lot of problems in the world. And if you look at the dumb things jerks do, it all has to do with the ten non-virtues. Yeah, it all has to do with that. Okay, so, um, yeah. And so also it's, uh, you know, in many of the different life forms too, you don't have the opportunity in that very life, in that life form, to become an Arya, in other words, to realize emptiness directly. So some of the desire realm gods have that ability, but once you get into the material and immaterial uh, meditative absorptions, those beings are like blissed excuse me, blissed out all the time in their concentration. But because they're blissed out all the time, they have no motivation to generate wisdom and get out of cyclic existence. Yeah. Whereas they say, as a human being, we have a good combination of happiness and suffering, enough misery so that we can see samsara is actually no fun to stay in, but enough happiness so that we're not overwhelmed by misery and unable to practice, but enough good circumstances so that we have the opportunity to practice. Okay? Yeah, so he says it's not possible to attain an Arya path for the first time with most uh, rebirths as gods of the higher realms and of the desire realm. Okay, so one of the Uh, good things we can put our precious human life to use for is creating the causes for a good rebirth. So that's something useful because if our, even if our high, and I hope our our, uh, broader, higher aspiration is, you know, to become a Buddha for the sentient being, benefit of all sentient beings, but even if that's our long-term motivation in order to fulfill that, we have to have a series of good rebirths because 
you know, if you're, you're reborn as monastery cats and dogs, you're close to the Dharma and very far away from the Dharma at the same time. You know, let alone being born, you know, as buffaloes, you know, water buffalo in India or as, uh, you know, what do they have? You know, like in... Um, like in Central Park, you can take horse-drawn carriages around places. You're born as one of those horses. In New York, the fancy place of the world where everybody wants to go, and you're a horse. Yeah? And completely useless. Isn't it? In terms of, of creating the cause for a good rebirth. So, um, you know... That that's one purpose that we can put our precious human life to. And, and it's an important purpose because if we don't have a good rebirth, you know, it, we'll put it this way, it's going to take a lot of lifetimes to completely full up, purify our mind and gain all the realizations because there's a lot to learn, a lot to practice. Transforming our mind is, you know, it's going to take a while. So... We have to have a series of good rebirths in order to have the space and time to do that. Yeah, so, so, you know, just working for a good rebirth, you know, for the long-term purpose of, of um, you know, of gaining full awakening is, is fine, is very good. Um, some people don't even want to think of full awakening or liberation. They're just, they just want a good rebirth in their next life. You know, they want to be president, although I don't see that as being a good rebirth. <laughs> I mean, what kind of karma do you create as leader of a country? Yikes. You know, most leaders of countries create horrible karma nowadays. Okay? But some people, you know, or maybe or they want to be famous. Yeah. They want to be reborn Michael Jackson, you know, or Marilyn Monroe. Do you think those people are happy? I don't. But, you know, some people, their, their aim is let's just have a good rebirth. So, you know, they can use this life to create that cause. You know, it's a limited cause. It's not a noble motivation. But it's better than just being concerned about the happiness of this life. Okay, so it's limited, but it's still considered a dharma motivation. Okay. Then uh, it continues, having attained a human rebirth with a powerful mind, if you use it meaninglessly, you are like someone stunned by magic. Not only is it the basis, you know, our precious human life, not only is it the basis needed to travel uh, the path to becoming a Tathagata, it is also the basis with which you can produce the causes of a high rebirth of wealth and entourage, in other words, kind of fame and popularity, generosity and so forth. Uh, not with other rebirths. For these reasons, constantly contemplate its great potential. Okay? So it's, it's saying, you know, we can use, the best purpose to use our, our, our precious human life for is to become a Buddha. Second best purpose is get ourselves out of cyclic existence. Yeah? 
Third best is, you know, have a good future life. Of course, you can have either of the first two, aspiring for full awakening or for um, liberation. And because that's your final motivation, you still can't create the causes for a good rebirth next time. And it becomes much, uh, much more valuable to do that. Okay? Whereas just wanting a good rebirth because you want to have riches and fame and this kind of thing. Um, you know, you have it for a while and then you die and you're back where you started from. Now, some of you may say, oh, this sounds like a lot of airy-fairy kind of stuff. Use my precious human rebirth. Buddhahood, liberation, precious human life. You know, why in the world? I mean, how do I know those things even exist? And anyway, even if they exist, they're a long time in the future. Why should I worry about them? Why don't I just enjoy my life now? And there's enough suffering here on planet Earth to take care of. Why don't I just do that? Yeah? Reasonable question, isn't it? Well, the, the thing is that, uh, you know, we may not have a lot of certainty about the existence of future lives or even the possibility of attaining liberation or awakening. But we can, if we study the Dharma, learn the reasons and contemplate the reasons why these things exist and why it's possible to attain them. Okay? So don't just have the attitude, I can't see it, so why should I believe it? Because yeah, you can't see the inside of your body either, but you believe you have it, don't you? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things. Can you see an atom? No. Do we believe there's atoms? You bet. Okay. So just the, the fact of, I can't see it, I haven't experienced it, doesn't make it non-existent. Okay. Lots of things we don't know. I mean, the dogs hear sounds we don't know. The cats see things we don't know. So it's not like we're omniscient. Sorry. <laughs> okay. But then, you know, well, why should I, you know, work for those things? They're so abstract anyway. Well, do you, do you prepare for your old age? You bet. Yeah, you have a, a SEP, you have an IRA, you have a 401k, you have different investments in different places, a well-diversified portfolio, you know how many points you've accumulated uh, with Social Security, so you have an idea of, you know, what you're going to get as your Social Security benefit, if you take it when you're 64, if you take it when you're 65, and how much more you get if you wait until you're 70 or 75. I'm sure you all know about that. We make lots of preparations for our future life. You even dream about where you want to go, what you want to do when you retire. Are any of those things certain to happen? 
They're not certain at all. From a Buddhist viewpoint, where we talk about rebirth, rebirth is certain. Our old age isn't. You know, most of us don't care a bit about rebirth, which is definitely going to come. But old age, which we're not even sure is going to, we're going to live that long, we work really hard to prepare for that. That really good idea? You know? When we say, but, but this life is so real. Yeah, that's true, but is your old age real? It's, you know, actually you might wind up in your next life before you get to the old age of this life. Yeah. So why do we make so much preparation for one and zero preparation for the other? Well, I'll worry about it after I die. Oh, okay. But do you want to have a good death? Do you want to be peaceful when you die? Or do you want to be freaking out? That you know you're going to experience. You can say, I don't believe in rebirth. But death, you know you're going to experience. Yeah. So do we want to create the cause for a good death? Or are we just like, well, I'll worry about it when I get there. Kind of like, you know, you're going to take your driver's license and you never practice driving and you just think, I'll worry about it when I get there. Yikes. <laughs> okay. So, you know, we have a lot of potential with this life. We really need to use it and not just kind of be flippant about it. Because really our time is the most important thing we have. And uh, do you ever get this feeling? You know how there's this certain rhythm to each day? And, you know, kind of each day you go to bed, it's like, well, there's another day that's over, and another day that's over, and another day that's over. And each morning, it's like, oh, here's another morning, and here's another morning. And do we ever think, you know, oh, here's another evening, I'm closer to death. Or here's another morning, I'm closer to death. Yeah? Do, do we think like that? Yeah? Because that's the direction we're going in. You know? And I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> yeah? I think you, you, you know that. Okay. So talking about the potential of our freedom and fortune. And then the, the next part in contemplating precious human life is how difficult uh, it is to attain it. Yeah. It's not easy to attain uh, a body of freedoms and fortune. Okay. So here uh, the text says, holding entirely to the side of non-virtue, you open the door to the lower realms. So if we create just non-virtue, if we're very reliable and consistent in creating non-virtue, you know, we all want to be reliable and consistent. We have to figure out what we want to be reliable and consistent doing. Okay, But if it's in creating non-virtue, 
we're opening the door to this kind of unfortunate rebirth. The thief of anger plunders the virtue within you. You fail to purify past misdeeds and to abstain from future ones, yet you take your ease. Think of the rebirth that awaits you. Okay, so when we use our life just to create a lot of non-virtue, we're paving the path to an unfortunate rebirth. You know, nobody judges us. There's no God or creator in Buddhism. Nobody gives us a, a lower rebirth. We create the causes for it all by ourselves. Shanti Deva, when he, he talks about how we uh, often respond to enemies, you know, like we're terrified of enemies and they're going to kill us and they're going to do all these awful things to us, so we have to attack them and do things to them before they can harm us. But he says, you know, the worst thing an enemy can do is kill you. But an enemy, another person, you know, cannot send you to the lower realms. Yeah. Somebody can curse us up and down, up and down, go to hell. You know, go to hell, I don't care about you, go to hell. There's no way they can send us to hell. We send ourselves. Because we create the cause. Okay. So Shantideva says, you know, if you really want to, to harm, if, if you really want to harm the enemy that is the one that really harms you the most, then you have to harm your own ignorance, anger, and attachment. That harming other sentient beings is like, it's, well, it's killing people who are going to die anyway. Why are you killing people who are going to die? And, you know, because everybody's going to die. So why are we wasting our time killing them? What good does it do? Yeah. Yet the real enemy, our ignorance, anger, and attachment, you know, that one, we just welcome into our lives whenever they want to come. Yeah? Oh, anger, come. Protect me. Give me some energy. Oh, attachment, come and make me happy. Let me pretend I'm in never-never uh, land for a while. Mm -hmm. Oh, confusion, come. Yeah? Let me be confused for a while. You know, it's like we're, we're uh, inviting the real enemies into the house and evicting the sentient beings who have been kind to us. Do you see how when you look at, at things from a Buddhist perspective, they're usually the opposite of our usual way? Yeah. That's kind of good, isn't it? Because you wouldn't be here if your usual way of looking at things was making you happy. Yeah. So you might be sitting here going, what did she say? This sounds like threatening, you know. <laughs> threatening me to go to hell. That's why I left Christianity. I was tired of being threatened with hell. She's doing the same thing. No, I'm not. 
<laughs> you know, I'm not threatening you with hell. I have no ability to send you to hell. Yeah, why would I threaten that? Now, like I said, we create the causes all by ourselves. And the fact is, if, you know, the way we were living our life right now were bringing us optimum pleasure and benefit and fulfillment, none of us would be here right now. We would all be doing what we thought brought us this optimum fulfillment and pleasure, wouldn't we? Yeah. But we're not there doing that. We're here because we want to learn something. And, you know, to learn something, our buttons have to get pushed. So if your buttons don't get pushed, then we're not, uh, you know, then we can't really benefit from the Dharma. Our buttons have to get pushed. Yeah? Because, you know, what are the buttons that are getting pushed? Our own ignorance. But if we hear all sorts of things, and it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Mm, I don't believe that. Mm. You know? Then, oh yeah, it's all okay. Then we're not going to change, are we? And if we don't change, then how are we going to make best use of our precious human life? So if you want to hear about light and love and bliss, I'm sure there's a lot of new age religions that can help you. <laughs> yeah. Buddha talks about life and love and bliss. But first we have to hear about the other stuff. Because that's what's impeding us. Okay, so... What the author's talking about here is it's actually very difficult to create the cause for a precious human life because it's so easy to create negativity. Yeah, it's so easy. Yeah. We, we commit non-virtue a lot. Then whatever virtue we commit, our anger destroys it or impedes it. And... Um, and we don't, you know, we're too lazy to do purification practices. So we have all these things we regret, but we say, mm, I'll take care of it, manana and la manana. You know, purification, yeah, that's what other people do. <laughs> yeah, I'll just sit here and feel guilty and rotten. <laughs> but I don't need to purify. No, really rather silly sometimes. So if you look, it's, it's quite difficult to create um, all the different kinds of virtue that are necessary to have a precious human life in the future. Yeah, because just to be born um, as a human being again, we need to keep ethical conduct. You know, just for an upper rebirth, we need ethical conduct. When you look around in this world, 
How many people keep really immaculate ethical conduct? Yeah. How many people do that? Yeah. If, if you look at your, your own actions, you know, if we go through the ten non-virtues, killing, stealing, unwise and unkind use of sexuality, lying, creating disharmony with our speech, harsh words, idle talk, coveting, malice, yeah, wrong views. Anybody here who's never done any of those? Yeah. Let's just take the four verbal ones. Anybody here who's never lied? Never in your whole life. You've never lied. Anybody? Yeah. Anybody who's never uh, talked badly about other people behind their back? Please, if you know, if you haven't done this, please raise your hand. We want to know so we can rejoice. <laughs> Anybody here who's never spoken harshly to someone else? Anybody here who's never gossiped? Yeah. So, yeah. And we're, we're kind of people who are trying. <laughs> Aren't we? You know, we're trying. We're trying to keep good ethical conduct. What about the people who don't even care? Yeah. I mean, you think of the karma that this guy who did the shooting yesterday created. Yeah? Where is he right now? Yeah? Well, he's not only all over the newspapers, but he's also experiencing tremendous suffering. Hmm? No, the police killed him. So, you know, and then you look at all the talking mouths about this. You know, NRA is quiet for the time being. They'll start saying their usual stuff in a week or two, and everybody will forget about it. And, you know, this is routine American life. Do you know that there's, on an average, one school shooting every week? Isn't that outrageous? 36 shootings a day. 36? 36 shootings a day. And since Newtown, which was just how many, three years ago? Anyway, 90,000 Americans have died from guns since Newtown. You know? It's like this is crazy. And yet you know, do we do we call that? We say, oh non virtue. Yeah, yeah. But guns don't do it. I love that argument. D guns don't kill people. Then why make them? <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't that the purpose of guns, to kill? If the purpose isn't to kill, then why, why? And if guns don't kill people, then why are you making them? 
Yeah. And why not give? If you know, these people say forts can also be a weapon, then why not arm the U.S. Uh, army with forks? Take away their machine guns and give them forks. Sorry, I'm... <laughs> yeah. Okay, but we can see, I mean, it's, it's difficult not to create... It's easy to create non-virtue because also when we rejoice at non-virtue, we create that kind of karma too. So it's very easy. Jeb, Jeb Bush, when he was talking about what happened, what did he say? He said, things happen. That's what he said about the shooting? Yeah. There, somebody asked him a question about what you would do, and he said, well, you know, things happen, and da 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 So, you know, it's, it's hard to create virtue. It's hard. And, uh, you know, not many people see that as um, their, the purpose in their life. You know? They see the purpose of their life as as much as possible to get what I want when I want it. And to win all the arguments and be right all the time and, you know, be famous and popular and everything like that. You know, so really having to work with our own minds so that we can refrain from harming others is it's not easy. And even in a situation like this, it's so easy to get mad. Yeah. And you know, get mad at the society that allows, you know, or the Congress who won't legislate about guns. And yet, you know, anger creates negative karma too. So can we look at that situation and state very clearly, you know, what's virtue and what's non-virtue, and yet not get angry? Yeah. And have some compassion for the people who who perpetuate non-virtue and who engage in it, yeah, instead of hating them and, you know, criticizing them and calling them names and so on. I saw one film, maybe it was, maybe it was Bowling for Columbine. Some of you may have seen this. Did he, in that film, he went to interview Charleston Heston, who at that time was the president of the NRA? And I remember one scene from that film, you know, where he had gone to talk to Heston and asked him some comments, and Charles and Heston just didn't want to even deal with it, and turned around and walked away. And I realized he was an old man who was limping as he walked away. And I thought, wow, you know, he and I might have really opposite views and he may be doing a lot of damaging things, but at the end of the day, he's an old man who's limping, who's going to have to face his own death at some point. Mm -hmm. 
and it's not going to be pretty, you know, because of the karmic visions that are going to happen at that time. So to, to try and keep a compassionate heart in, in all of this. Okay. Since gaining happiness depends on the Dharma, you must practice it. As you have spiritual masters and freedom and fortune, you can practice it. So it's not just that you must, but we have the opportunity to do it. If you do not do so now, it will be difficult to attain freedom and fortune in the future. As the time of your death is not fixed, practice the Dharma henceforth. Okay, so... The idea is if we don't create the causes for a good rebirth, where we can continue to create the causes until we become enlightened, then it's going to be very difficult uh, to do that in the future. So if we say this life, I'll have fun, I'll practice the Dharma in future lives, well, what kind of future life are you guaranteed to have if you don't practice virtue now. Yeah? And if you say, well, I'll just pray whatever life I have, I'll practice it now. Well, maybe that's what our cats said. And maybe that's what the turkeys say. Yeah? Turkeys, you know, they probably made very strong prayers to always be near Dharma practitioners but they didn't create the virtue to bring that about. But the turkeys are all over here, here Dharma practitioners. Okay? So it's, and then once you're born as a turkey or as a cat or, you know, the, st- the stink bugs are out now too. And uh, we have some chipmunks and you might see a deer. Um, you know, when you're born like that, then how do you practice? Very difficult. Very, very difficult. So we can't just kind of say, well, you know, later I'll do it. I mean, we can say later, but if we do, then let's not be surprised about what the results of that is. Okay, compared to the lower realms, the likelihood of a higher high rebirth is very small. If simple high rebirths are rare, consider the rarity of freedom and fortune. So it's hard just to have a rebirth as a human being or in a celestial realm, let alone having all the 18 conditions of precious human life. That's really, really hard. And yet here we are, and we have them. In brief, identify the nature of freedom and fortune and in the context of karma and its effects, contemplate the difficulty of attaining them. Okay, so really think about the actions we've created and, you know, where are we likely to be reborn when you consider the actions that that we've created. Have we purified? Do we even regret our non-virtue or do we just kind of justify it? Okay, so this is things, you know, use the time 
here at the retreat to really think about these things and do this kind of internal uh, contemplation and introspection. It's very, very useful if you do. Okay, then the next outline is how to take full advantage of our precious human life. Okay, so it talks first about gaining certainty regarding the system of the spiritual practice in general. Okay. And the next outline is actually the way all discourses are included in the path of the three kinds of being. Okay, so we need to talk a little bit about the three kinds of beings. So we here we're talking about three general Uh, capacities, beings of three general capacities. And so it's not like if you're one of these at one time, you're always that, but you can be, you know, an initial capacity being at one time and advance to a, a middle capacity being and advance to a higher capacity being. So um, the, and the, these three, you know, kind of layers, so to speak, or levels, or capacities. Uh, it comes from Atisha's lamp of the path. Okay, So the initial level practitioner is somebody who is, there's two kinds of initial, initial level practitioners. One of them is only interested in this life. And the second one is interested in a good rebirth in samsara. So both of those, they're still, in, they're both called initial level practitioners because both of them are looking for good rebirths within samsara. Actually, the first level being isn't really a practitioner. They're just an ordinary person wanting the happiness of this life. A special, um, the other initial capacity being is called a special initial capacity being. That person is caring about their future life. They, they want a good future life. Okay? The middle capacity being their motivation is to be out of samsara altogether. So they have a deeper capacity than the initial ones because uh, the initial level beings can't think so far in the future and they can't uh, think in a really broad way. So the ordinary beings don't even think past this life. The special initial beings can think of future lives, and that's good. But they can't think of all sentient beings. They can't think of Buddhahood. They can't think of getting out of samsara yet. Yeah. But after they practice a while, and uh, if they keep hearing Dharma teachings and keep contemplating them, then they may get to a point where they say, yes, I'm, I am working for a, a good uh, rebirth, but not as an end in itself. My real goal is to get out of cyclic existence altogether, and I need a good rebirth to do that, but my real goal is, you know, I'm tired of being on this merry-go-round, let's get off. Yeah? Or I'm tired of being on the Ferris wheel already, I'm tired of going on the Matterhorn. Samsara is really kind of like the Matterhorn. 
isn't it? You know, you go up, 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 like going to the higher realms, and then snap, boom, straight down. Yeah, and then this way, that way. Yeah, I mean, this is like our our rebirth in samsaric, totally unpredictable, and we're screaming the whole way. Yeah. And we think the Matterhorn is fun. Isn't that interesting? We think it's fun, but when you get off, do you say, oh, I had such a good time, or do you say, oh, I'm sick to my stomach? (laughs) I'm glad I didn't have to go up another hill and crash down again. Okay, so... And the middle incapacity person has more capacity to think beyond the immediate uh, pleasure of this life and even the immediacy of a future life. They want to get out of, off the merry-go-round altogether. Okay? So they have the capacity to understand that and they're creating the causes for it. Then, so, so the the initial level being who's aspiring for a good rebirth, creating the causes by practicing ethical conduct. You know, abandoning the ten non-virtues, keeping at least the five precepts or the monastic precepts, something like that. The middle level being, yeah, they, the way that, that they're practicing to get out of samsara is to practice the three higher trainings. So again, ethical conduct, concentration, wisdom. Then the higher level being is somebody who says, okay, nice, good rebirth is good, but very limited. Getting out of samsara myself is better, but also very limited. Because there's all these other living beings. And they've been kind to me, and they want happiness as much as I do. So I can't in really good conscience just care about myself and my own liberation. You know, I have to do something to be a benefit to other living beings. Yeah, so that person has a much deeper capacity, you know, and a much broader mind because they're not just thinking of the short term and they're not just thinking of themselves. And they're not just thinking of liberating themselves soon. They're thinking of working for the benefit of sentient beings for eternity. And, you know, uh, creating the causes, you know, the huge number of causes to become a fully awakened being in order to work for the benefit of others. Okay? So these higher capacity beings are definitely higher capacity. What they talk about when they explain the three levels of beings, they say, you know, that we start out on practicing the path in common with the initial level being. Then we practice the path in common with the middle level being. Then we practice the higher level being's path. So the first two have in common with because the idea is 
really our, our aim, even though we haven't actualized the bodhicitta and the, and the full aspiration and intention to become Buddha for the benefit of all beings, it's in our mind there somewhere. And we do have aspiration for it, even though, you know, we're always so self-centered and we create non-virtue and everything like that. We still have this very high regard for bodhicitta, for that noble aspiration. So that's our final goal. But to get there, we have to practice the path in common with the initial level being. You know, before you go to grad school, you have to go to first grade. Yeah? So your, your uh, long-term motivation is grad school. Right now, first grade. Okay? So our long-term aim to become Buddhas, to benefit others, right now we practice the path in common with the initial level beings. We're not an initial level being completely because we have that long-term aspiration even though it's our, that our bodhicitta is still fabricated. Okay. Then we also have to practice the path in common with the middle level practitioner, you know. Not only do you need to go to first grade and all of grammar school and middle school, you also need to go to high school. Yeah? So middle path being is like high school and getting your BA. Okay? You've got to go through those. So it's the path in common with the middle level beings. Then you can do your grad work and get your PhD or you know, whatever you want to do. Um, okay? So it has to be in this kind of gradual process, this step-by-step -step thing. So I use the example of an educational system, but that is not to imply that PhDs are the people qualified to become bodhisattvas. Because... Yeah, Dharma wisdom and ordinary wisdom are two very, very different things. Somebody can have a lot of ordinary knowledge and ordinary intelligence, but in terms of the Dharma, be very stupid or unintelligent. Maybe that's politer, but stupid. <laughs> yeah? So, you know, don't, don't, judge people's dharma ability based on their social status or their education level, you know, or how, how far they, you know, what they score on an IQ test, because those things are, are very, very different. Yeah. And so similarly, don't judge ourselves based on those kind of criteria either. All spiritual paths, the subject matter of all the discourses, so all the, t the sutras, you know, are without doubt included in the paths of the three kinds of beings. For there is no discourse that was not spoken for any reason other than to ensure the achievement 
of high rebirth and highest good. So all the teachings of the Buddha were given to ensure the achievement either of high, higher rebirth or of the highest good. The highest good refers to liberation or full awakening. So two types of highest good. Okay? Yeah, because it says the later breaking down into two. And that the third, the full awakening, is the prime one. So there's inclusion. So it's saying if you want to pat, practice the Buddhist teachings, the only way you're going to fi- find them is in these three practices. Three capacity, the practices of the three capacity beings, and that those three, the, those practices uh, subsume all of the Buddha's teachings. Okay. Okay, so the next is, um, okay, explaining why you are to be guided progressively according to the three beings' path and what it means to be guided according to the paths of the three beings. So here the text says, um, as for the way to be guided, the lesser and intermediate paths are shared. So that's what I was saying before, we practice in common with those. Prepared by some of them, you are led to the great beings' path. So we, uh, we practice the paths of the initial and intermediate being, and that prepares us to practice the path of the advanced level being. Yeah. So we shouldn't um, have the idea that we want to skip over the beginning. You know, sometimes you know, initial level being, I'm not initial. I'm intelligent. I'm special. I don't need to do the initial things. Those are for babies. You know? I'm a very spiritual person. I can go directly to the highest teachings. I don't need that baby stuff like don't lie and don't kill. That's just baby stuff. You know, I learned that from mom and dad. Did you practice it? <laughs> Don't ask me that question. Okay. So the text continues. Bodhicitta is the main beam, the main support of the great vehicle. For the completion of the two collections, it is like a philosopher's stone. Okay, so here we have to do. Yeah? We have our motivation to become a Buddha, and then we have to complete the two collections. So it's the collection of merit, the collection of wisdom. And then those two collections give rise to the two Buddha bodies. So the collection of merit primarily gives rise to the form body of a Buddha, the collection of wisdom primarily gives rise primarily to the truth body of Buddha. Okay, so the um, bodhicitta is like a philosopher's stone for collecting um, two collections, you know, completing the two collections. So a philosopher's stone, I had to look it up. 
is a legendary alchemical substance said to be capable of turning base metals such as lead into gold. Why is it called the Philosopher's Stone? Anybody have any idea? Yeah? Well, if we refer to Harry Potter, sometimes the sorcerer was known as a philosopher. Uh huh. Magic. Okay, and a stone? The stone was just like the element that was needed to transmute the base metals into gold, I guess. Okay. Some kind of rock. Okay, well, we got lots of rocks out in the land. <laughs> okay, but what it's saying here is that, you know, that bodhicitta is, is like this alchemical substance that can transform our, our limited type of virtue into the cause for full awakening. Yeah, it can transform ordinary actions into the path to awakening. That has this ability to make everything we do in our life highly meaningful. All temporary and ultimate objectives without exception are doubtlessly achieved by the supreme aspiration of bodhicitta. So if all temporary and ultimate objectives, so if you want to do anything that's worthwhile doing, bodhicitta is the motivation that gets you going to do that. Okay? To realize the aspiration that carries such advantages, you need great delight in its benefits. So, you know, to have to generate this aspiration, which will lead us to be able to actualize anything that's worth actualizing, first we need to see the benefits of having that motivation. Yeah. Now, to, to see the, the benefits of it, yeah, we have to look first at our own situation. Before we can think you know, and get a real strong feeling for liberating all sentient beings from samsara, but we have to look at our own situation that we're in and see its defects, see its disadvantages, and want to get out of it. So it's, you know, when we practice the path of the initial level being and the middle level being, that helps us to see the disadvantages of samsara which is, you know, and we do that in terms of seeing it for ourselves, and then after that, generalizing that everybody else is experiencing them, that, that, so everybody else is worthy of liberation as well, and that's a good goal for me to aim for, okay, is to become a Buddhist so I can lead others to liberation. Okay. So the, the whole idea is, in order to cultivate the kind of compassion that we need in order to benefit, in order to um, actualize bodhicitta, to generate bodhicitta, we need to really see the depth of other beings suffering in samsara. To see the depth of their suffering, first we have to see the depth of our own 
Because if we can't see our own, we're not going to be able to see others. Okay? So that's why I said Buddha taught light, love, and bliss, but first we have to look at the first two noble truths and see them in terms of ourselves because it's only by doing that that we'll be able to have the compassion for, bodhi, for other living beings who experience the same thing. And that compassion is necessary to generate the bodhicitta, which is necessary to gain full awakening. Okay? So let's pause here. Well, let me just read the next paragraph. Since, since you achieve it, bodhicitta, by contemplating the path shared with lesser, lesser and or with initial and uh, intermediate beings, be certain to meditate on these and you will realize it. Love and compassion are the roots that allow its development. When someone reflects on the way, she is personally deprived of happiness and is tormented by suffering. If it does not appall her, it will be impossible to feel that others' sufferings are unbearable. So if by looking at our own situation we aren't horrified and appalled, then how will we feel horrified and appalled looking at the suffering of other living beings? And without feeling horrified in that way, the the very strong compassion necessary to do something about it will not arise in us. Okay. Hence, by reflecting on the way you are subjected to the desolation of the lower realms, and even in high rebirths are deprived of happiness, according to the lesser and intermediate being's path, related to yourself personally. Then, focusing on others, Love and compassion for sentient beings, your friends, will arise. Okay, so really contemplate on, you know, your own situation of having in the past been born in the lower realms, of the danger in the future of being born in them, and how even when you have high rebirths, you're deprived of happiness, you know. And then, and so, you know, you gain that kind of understanding by practicing the paths in common with the initial and intermediate level beings. On that basis, then you generate love and compassion, the great resolve and bodhicitta. Okay, maybe I'll just finish this section as long as I'm going. Furthermore, the accumulations and purifications within the lesser and intermediate beings' paths are the means to purify your mind in preparation for generating bodhicitta. So if we want to actually, you know, generate bodhicitta, we need to purify our mind. We need to accumulate merit. A lot of that practice is done when we're practicing in common with the initial and, and intermediate level beings. It doesn't mean we stop when we you know, to become a higher level being. But we, we have to get a handle on purification and accumulation of merit right from the get-go. We can't skip over that. Okay. Consequently, contemplate the way the topics of the lesser and intermediate paths 
are, are auxiliaries to the great being's path and cherish their practice. Training in this way is the basis for generating bodhicitta. Okay? So saying don't poo-poo the paths of the initial and, and intermediate level being, you know, because they're the actual path to get us to become an advanced practitioner. Uphold aspiring bodhicitta by ritual and learn the precepts. Okay, so after you've mastered the initial and intermediate level beings practice, then uphold aspiring bodhicitta, you know, take it by ritual, which is um, making the pledge to not abandon bodhicitta for your life. You take that in front of a teacher. Uh, you're not taking the bodhisattva vow at that time, but you're just generating aspiring bodhicitta. And you learn the precepts that, that you practice with aspiring bodhicitta. Those are in the blue book, the blue prayer book, for those of you who wanted to read it. Then, when you feel you can bear the load of the bodhisattva's practice, take the ethical restraints of engaging bodhicitta and guard from root transgressions, even at the cost of your life. So once your, your aspiring bodhicitta is stable, then take the engaging bodhicitta, which involves taking the bodhisattva ethical restraints. Yeah? And once you have those restraints, then, you know, really try, at the, you know, even at the cost of your life, to not create a root, a root transgression. Also abstain from lesser and intermediate transgressions. And if by them your ethical restraint declines, restore it. So try and also abandon the auxiliary um, uh, breaches of, you know, the auxiliary precepts of the of a bodhisattva. But even if you break them, then purify them and restore them. Don't just brush it off. Okay? Then what we do is then train in the six perfections in general. Okay? So generosity, ethical conduct again, fortitude, joyous effort, meditative stability, and wisdom. Okay? And in particular, achieve serenity to produce the super-knowledges and insight with a decisive understanding of thusness. Okay, so practice the six perfections in general and especially practice serenity and insight and gain a realization of emptiness. Then engage in tantra, it says. Okay, furthermore, Having understood the profound and the vast paths, along with their order, number, and association, cease contenting yourself with an incomplete method to achieve Buddhahood. Okay? So understanding the profound and the vast path, the, ba the vast path refers to the practice of bodhicitta, and all the method aspects of the path, generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude, and so on. So create a lot of merit by practicing those, and also practice the profound path, meaning the realization of emptiness, so that you can 
do all these incredible actions to create merit for, and benefit sentient beings, and at the same time know the ultimate nature of yourself and the actions you're doing and the merit you're creating. Okay, and so we have to know the, um, you know, the order of all these different practices, the number of these practices, how they link up with each other, their association, and cease contenting yourself with an incomplete method to achieve Buddhahood. So if you really want to achieve Buddhahood, you know, you've got to learn the full method. You can't just kind of play around. So it's kind of like if you want to be a surgeon, you know, don't, don't be satisfied with, you know, just going to a few courses in medical school. Yeah, because I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be operated on by a surgeon <laughs> like that. You know, and that surgeon wouldn't be very qualified and they probably wouldn't have a lot of self-confidence either. So they're saying if you really want to, you know, become a Buddha to benefit others, learn the full whole path. You know, don't be content with, you know, a little bit here and a little bit there. Okay. So we'll stop here. Yeah. This thing about um, order and Oh yeah, it can relate to that too. Mm-hmm. So you know how the path fits together. Right, yeah. You know how things fit together. You know what you need to do. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, that it isn't like you just create method or merit uh, without learning anything about emptiness and then do emptiness totally afterwards. But you do know that you need to create a lot of merit and at the same time generate, you know, wisdom. But in terms of realizations, you're going to realize serenity before you realize insight, usually. Yeah. So to know how things fit together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you talked about how you have to learn all these things and then you can do Tantra. I do white tar practice at the Saki Monastery and there's often that awkward little part in the middle where you're supposed to be meditating on the realization of emptiness and of course I'm nowhere near there so I just stay quiet. And yeah. Am I doing my practice more harm or am I doing it no, not any good by doing this <laughs> when I'm not there? Yeah, no, you're, yeah, doing white heart practice like you're doing is very, very good. Yeah, you're not harming yourself at all, and you're benefiting, because even if we're not there yet, we pretend to be. Mm-hmm. And that gives us the, you know, like, like that portion, you know, meditate on emptiness. What in the world is emptiness? But you keep your mind quiet for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not real emptiness, but it's keeping your mind quiet, and that's benefiting yourself. And then you know, oh, gee, it would be really nice if I learned some more about emptiness, because then when I came to that part in the sadhana, 
at least I can think about emptiness. I, maybe I, you know, it's going to take a long time to realize it, but at least I can, you know, have some thought of emptiness when I come to that part. So that's fine. What you're doing is good. Yeah. Yeah. And white tar is a lovely practice. So there's a question online and then a comment from someone else. So the question is, if the rebirth is still within samsara, for example, to become the prime minister or president of the country in future life in order to benefit his countrymen, is this also generating bodhicitta? Okay, so if, if you aspire, at, you're an ordinary being without bodhicitta, and you're aspiring to become the president or prime minister in order to benefit people, then the question is, is that bodhicitta? Yeah. No. Bodhicitta is the aspiration to attain full awakening for the benefit of sentient beings. So aspiring to be president and a prime minister, you know, isn't aspiring, is different than aspiring to be a Buddha. Okay. Also, you may be born as president or prime minister. But if you don't have a very solid spiritual grounding, although you say, I want to benefit sentient beings, it's going to be very difficult even to keep basic ethical conduct in that situation if you are not already well practiced. Yeah. We have this idea that becoming president or prime minister, then you have a lot of power and you'll be able to do anything, you'll be able to pass any kind of bill that you want to and any kind of legislation you want to in order to be, in order to benefit the people, okay? I think Obama had a good motivation for becoming president. Has he been able to fulfill the things he aspired to do to benefit people? No. Why not? Because the causes and conditions weren't there. Yeah. So we, we think, oh, if I had that much power, I could do everything by myself. But, you know, you're president, but if you don't have a cooperative Congress, you can't do anything. Yeah? So it isn't sufficient just to aspire to have that kind of power, you know? You need all the other cooperative conditions for that power to be useful. Plus, you need a lot of spiritual stability yourself. Otherwise, you're going to get angry at the opposition political parties. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to criticize people. You know, it'll be very, very difficult. Comment? The comment is just this about the stone. Um, this person saying you sharpen things with a stone. You what? You sharpen things with a stone. You sharpen things with a stone. Okay. Yeah? So, I've noticed that with the bodhicitta aspirations, um, the investigation into our own suffering, as you very crucial. And that has been very difficult to really get at over 
takes a lot of time and a lot of reflection and a lot of experiences and a lot of analyzing those experiences to really get to the heart of the concept, you know, I'm the source of my suffering. My thoughts are the source of my suffering. Because I find that the old habits, like you said, getting angry at bad behavior, getting upset at political situations, those reactions are in a, in a snap. And then you see, you don't even realize where they're coming from. And I've also noticed that having a benefit of 10 years of Dharma practice now is a lot different from two years or five. Mm -hmm. So the it, it's very easy early on to have a lot of things start to go right in life, right? And you're feeling better, and then all of a sudden your pride starts to climb, and then you're thinking, hey.
Yep, that's it. <laughs> and that's the kind of understanding that comes with time. You know, that, uh, and it's an understanding that starts out up here and gradually gets deeper and deeper. But you're completely right. It's very difficult for us to be honest about our own suffering because we can get what we want very quickly and we, can, we have distraction at our fingertips. Yeah. So there's nothing that makes it so that we really have to look. We can always find something to do, especially in this age of you know, internet and technology. Yeah. So you come here for retreat, then a lot of those avenues are closed. So one part of you is happy and another part of you is like, <laughs> you know, you're going through withdrawal. Yeah. Can I get into the office in the middle of the night and get my phone out? You know, check my phone and then put it back before Federal Sompton notices it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm very struck by the listening to it in the news and hearing about the shooting. until I figure out how to do it right. And, and what's really clear to me is the source of these shootings is that we live in a culture where we believe some people deserve killing. And once you accept that, there's only one question, which is who? And so that poor suffering person who, decide, who is so miserable and suffering the only way to relieve his suffering is to go to a school and start shooting. Had been taught that some people deserve killing. And so he made he said, Well, I get to decide. And what that has done for me is to look in and really deal with my sense of deserving and not deserving. And really look. And when I get angry at someone else and say, wait a minute. You are saying that person deserves to be harmed. What kind of person are you? Because it's not a difference, it's just a matter of degree. Yeah. If I put anyone out of my heart, I will not continue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Someone in their, their father figure had, you know, was in prison for murdering someone. So it was like this thing was passed down. There was mm -hmm. 
We don't necessarily want to kill people, but uh, just have them suffer a little bit. They're worthy of my anger because they're an awful person because they did this and that to me. Yeah. So it's, you're saying it's a matter of degree, but it's still the same kind of wishing somebody else to suffer. It's in all of us. With the first precept, one of the first things I stopped doing was killing mosquitoes. And I really thought about how that changed my mind. I stopped responding to something that was aggravating me with violence. Mm -hmm. I'm often taught that's how you deal with something that aggravates Yeah. Yeah, even with a mosquito. Wow. Stop. Yeah, stop responding with violence. It's, yeah, we think the first precept is easy. <laughs> yeah, when you really scratch the surface and look like this, then you see it's not, it's not really so easy. Okay, so we'll close. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spirits
especially at Robusti Abbey.